Sidewalk Audio and PatioBooks.com presents The Prince of Hazel and Oak, a podcast novel by John Lenahan. Book two of the Shadow Magic series. Read by the author. Chapter 32 The Invisible Man It took a while before the gorse bushes let us pass. There was little talking on the way back. For the most part, we concentrated on not plummeting. Back at the digs, I volunteered to hike down to the beach and scrounge for driftwood. Taun agreed to come with me and help persuade some fish to be our main course. What shall we do now? Taun asked me as we weaved our way through the gorse. Should we start digging for smoking worms? I have no idea what to do. Oh, that's not good, Connor. You're our ideas man. I made a guttural sound. It was meant to be a laugh, but by the time it made it out of my mouth, it was a pitiful grunt of a broken spirit. Well, start thinking up your own ideas, because I'm fresh out. Tawn wisely didn't say anything else during our walk. I didn't blame him. Even I wasn't happy with my own company. What the hell was I doing here? What if Red never comes back? What if this whole thing is a giant goose chase? What if Dad dies while I'm shipwrecked out here and I don't even get a chance to say goodbye? My mood was no better back at the digs in front of a roaring fire. When Brendan sat down next to me, he had that look on his face like he was going to bestow some pearl of wisdom. Before he could open his mouth, I said, shut up. Well, it looks like somebody forgot to put on his feathered underwear today. Oh, I got it on, Brendan. They're just damp, like everything else in my life. Leave me alone, will you? Okay, maybe I'll just have a game of checkers with my good buddy Turlo. Where is he, anyway? It wasn't until the food was ready that we all started asking the same question. We scouted as much of the perimeter as we dared in the darkness, but Turlo was gone. An hour of discussion over a cold dinner couldn't solve the mystery of what happened to the Banshee. The only constructive product of our conversation was a plan to search for him at first light. As I stood from the table, I said, Maybe he's the only one of us with enough sense to abandon this stupid quest. No one was disappointed when I went to bed. Later, Brendan sat on the edge of my bunk. Connor, I know about things being so bleak that it seems easier to give up. I've been there. But now is not the time. I know. You're right, I said without opening my eyes. It was exactly what I've been lying there thinking about for the last hour. I'm... Sorry for my foul mood. Do me a favor. Apologize to Tawn for me. Brendan nodded. I made the effort and propped myself up on my elbows. I'm not giving up, Brendan. I'm just tired and scratched to hell and cold and, and too tired to even finish this sentence. We've been at this for a long time. I'm going to rest tonight. Tomorrow, I'll figure out how to save the land. I attempted a smile. I've done it before, you know. 
I dropped my head back on my pillow with that thought on my mind. Sure, I'd saved the land once before, but I had my dad with me then. Without him, I just didn't have a clue. Tomorrow, I said, not even knowing if Brendan was still there. Things will all become clear tomorrow. Little did I know how prophetic that sentence would be. That night was full of fits and starts, punctuated by vivid and cryptic dreams. It seemed that the more experience I became with dreaming, the less understandable they were. I'd almost give up trying to decipher any meaning in them at all. That night I dreamt I was in a mayonnaise jar filled with little smoking red-faced worms. I stabbed a tiny red earthworm and he slid away with the lawnmower. In another dream, the invisible man was back. During a phase of amateur psychoanalysis, I had decided that the invisible man was me. But in this vision, I dreamt that the invisible man was skulking around stealing stuff. And I thought, maybe it was red. Red did have a creepy habit of sneaking up on us. I awoke in the darkness and listened. Nothing. I reached under my bed and strapped on the sword of door, then fell back into a fitful sleep. The last dream I had that night would have, under normal circumstances, shot me right out of bed. The invisible man pulled up in a chair next to my bunk and stuck something into my shoulder. Then he reached to his collar and removed an amulet from around his neck. Instantly, he became invisible. When I opened my eyes, I knew exactly what had been done to me. I didn't have to wonder. Once you have had one of my Aunt Neve's paralyzing pins stuck in your neck, you don't forget the sensation. This pin wasn't actually in my neck. It was in the top of my shoulder. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to turn my head when I heard Turlow's voice. How do you spell butcher? Just like in my dream, Turlow was sitting in a chair next to my bed with his legs crossed as he casually wrote onto an Allen slate. You're the invisible man. He looked up from his slate. I am who? You're the invisible man. I dreamt about you. That, Connor, is not possible. No, I did. I dreamt about you, but... I didn't know it was you. You were invisible. I saw you walking with Essa and talking to Kielty, but I thought it was me. I didn't see that it was you until you took that amulet off your neck. Turlow stopped writing and poked the amulet that was now hanging around the Owen slate. You and your uncle's dream vision is truly remarkable. You are the only ones that have ever seen even the tiniest bit past my Siath amulet. Sieth, I said to myself, searching the language database in my head. Sieth means hide. I suspect all of the dreamers in the land will spot me now, but I had to use the amulet on the slate because I didn't want a reply to come through and erase this message before Red can read it. That's Essa's slate, I take. 
He tilted his head in a gesture of false guilt. I always take the opportunity to steal something when I'm in the brownie lands. The next time you're there, you should try it. Everyone always suspects a brownie. But I don't imagine you'll be visiting the Alderlands anytime soon. Or ever. So Brendan was right, I said. You are Kielty's lackey. He stopped writing and looked sharply up. There are no lackeys here. Kilty rightfully wants back his oak throne, and I want the Banshees to finally hold the position they deserve in the land. Yeah, as Kilty's lackeys. I thought for a second he was going to hit me, but then he laughed. Ha! I find it hard to be provoked by a person who can't move from the neck down. He had a point. I would have shrugged an agreement if I could have moved my shoulders. It was amazing how calm I was about all this. Maybe because last night I had deep down already decided that I had failed. This was just icing on the cake. How'd you get one of my Aunt Neve's paralyzing pins? I have a bag full of them. Kielty stole Neve's recipe book, and he still has a couple of leprechaun goldsmiths under his protection, so to speak. I've been aching to use one of these on you for ages, if only to shut you up. I didn't know what I was going to do when I lost them and S's slate on the bottom of the sea. It took me all night to convince Red to get them for me. How did Red get them? Your uncle is right about you. You're not very clever. You know so little about Red, he might as well be your invisible man. Now quiet, I have to finish this before he comes back. Turlow bent down to the slate and asked, How do you spell mortals? What did you tell Red? I just pointed out how you and that traitor puka over there destroyed the Tree of Knowledge, marooned all of the pukas in their fur, and then I told Red how you were planning to butcher him so you could use his blood to bring an army of mortals over from the real world to take over the land. Red's blood? Like I said, Connor, there is a lot you don't know about our host. And did he believe you? Well, he hasn't talked to many people in a long time, and I do lie particularly well, so yes, he did. And when I show him this letter here that you wrote, then I'm fairly sure he'll kill you. It would be better if Red kills you. That way I don't have to lie to Essa when she asks me if I did it, in case she uses that Aweth glass she has. I'll tell you what, if she doesn't use that pesky truth crystal, I'll tell her that you died saving my life. Don't say I never did you any favors. I wouldn't want to be you when she finds out. She'll be dead before she finds out, along with everyone else in the Hall of Knowledge. The army of the Banshees and the Brownies will see to that. He finished forging the message and said, Time to meet Moran. Who's Moran? I asked. Turlow let out an overly dramatic sigh as he stood up. Red is Moran. Moran? Where had I heard that name? Yeah, I remembered. He was the puka that left to start the colony of mermaids, the Mertain. Rhiannon said he was maybe the smartest puka that ever lived and he could change into any animal. So what? I said out loud. Does Red change into a worm? Well, well, Turlow said as he grabbed me by the hair. The fairy 
can be taught. Aunt Neve's paralyzing pin only meant that I couldn't move. It didn't mean that I couldn't feel pain. Turlow dragged me out of bed by my hair and then bumped me like an ironing board over empty bunks. My heels hit the floor hard and I was dragged backwards at a 45-degree angle through the digs. Just inside the front door, I saw Araf, Brendan, and Tawn, all vertical and propped up against the wall. Araf was still curled up like he was asleep. Brendan had his arm outstretched as if to stop an attacker, and Tawn looked like a toy soldier who had fallen backwards against the wall while at attention. As I was dragged past, their eyes frantically dashed back and forth in their sockets, but they couldn't speak. Turlow must have pinned them very high on their necks. Red is Moran, I shouted over to Tawn. I saw his eyes widen just before the sunlight blinded me. My heels slammed painfully onto each step that led down from the porch. It hurt like hell, but I refused to let the banshee hear me yelp. He finally propped me up precariously against a tall stump. When he let go of me, I slid and fell nose first into the hard ground. He didn't even try to catch me. When he propped me up again, I spat in his face. Well, he said, wiping his cheek with his sleeve, I was wondering when you would get a little fight in you. Wouldn't you really like to fight me yourself, man to man? Take this pin out of my neck and grab a sword. Only a lackey uses lackeys to do their dirty work for them. Connor, I am the Turlo. I do not need to prove my manhood to anyone. I have long ago discovered that it is not the way of the winning that matters, just the winning. The ends justify the means? Yes, well put. I can see why you get along with my uncle so well. Tell me, Turlo, where were you when I cut Kielty's hand off? Were you in Castle Door? No, I was in the Reedlands. Then you're welcome, I said with a snort. For what? I saved your life. Turlow shook his head. Kielty told me that you would say something like that. Yeah, because he knew it was true. He tried to kill you. Turlow wasn't listening anymore. He looked past me. I couldn't turn my head far enough to see what he was looking at. He walked towards me and stuck another one of Aunt Neve's pins in me, this time in my neck. Then he removed the one in my shoulder. I could no longer turn my head, and when I tried to speak, I found I could no longer do that either. All I could do was look straight ahead as a strong gust of wind from behind whisked my hair into my face. Good morning, Moran, Turlow said as red appeared in my peripheral vision. Red walked past me. All of the previous frippery in his demeanor was now gone. He eyeballed me like a general inspecting his troops. What do you have to say for yourself? Red asked me. When I said nothing, he said, Can he speak? He could speak if he chose, Turlow lied. But he knows he is caught. I found him writing this letter to his father, the father that is supposed to be encased in glass. Turlow showed Red the message on the face of the Allen slate. I am sorry to bring these troubles to your island, Turlow said, but I must go. I must make the tide, and I must warn my people of what I have just learned. Of course, Banshee, 
Red said. And thank you for bringing them to me. I have been away from the treachery of the land for too long. Where is the Puka trader and the others? They are in the digs, dead. They put up quite a struggle when I found them out. It is a mess in there. I wouldn't go inside. Thank you, Banshee. It's about time I had new digs. Red bowed, and Turlow returned it. Then, with the tiniest of smiles to me, he turned and jogged to the beach path. Red crouched down and covered his face with his clenched fists. Then he stopped and stood up. Have you nothing to say for yourself, tree killer, before I send you and your cohorts to the pyre? From Red's point of view, I must have looked like the coldest of criminals. I just stood and stared. Inside, I was screaming. Red walked up to me. Do you not even want another lesson in translation? I told you that taw means worm, but worm is an old word. Do you not know what worm means in the common tongue? Well, I'll tell you anyway. No, wait. Better yet, I'll show you. He took off his shirt and then the kilt-like thing he had around his waist. Even though no one could hear it and I couldn't even say it, a wisecrack sprung to my mind along the lines of, what worm are you talking about? He dropped down to one knee and once again placed his bald fists in front of his face in a gesture of intense concentration. I had seen puka changes before, and it is always impressive, but I had never seen anything like this. Not only did it look impressive, but it sounded impressive. First, he went red. Not redhead red, but cooked lobster red. Then fist-sized scales clinked into place as he got big. First, he got bull big, then elephant big, and finally dinosaur big. He raised his head at the same time that his wings fully extended. Of course, I said to myself, worm means dragon. I think this would have been one of the most magnificent moments in my life if it hadn't been ruined by the realization that momentarily I would be dead. I could hardly blame Dragon Red. In his eyes, all he saw was a cold-hearted, expressionless killer. He didn't see my knees knocking because I couldn't move them, and he didn't even see me open my mouth in wonder because I was frozen solid. I must have looked like a man prepared to die for his sins. Dragon Red rocked his huge, spiny head back and forth and placed his snout inches from mine. Smoke seeped out from between his fangs, my eyes watered and my nose burned from the smell of brimstone. Then he cocked his head back like a snake getting ready to strike. I saw the hair that was hanging in front of my eyes curl and burn as he sent a fireball the size of a car past me. It was aimed directly at the digs. You have been listening to The Prince of Hazel and Oak a podcast novel by John Lenehan. Music gratefully provided by Lunasa. 
You can hear more of their fabulous music at www.lunasa.ie. That's L-U-N-A-S-A dot I-E. You can learn more about Shadow Magic and its author on www.shadowmagic.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening. Shadow Magic, book one of the series, is available from HarperCollins in paperback, EPUB, and Kindle formats.